Welcome to episode 46 of the In All Things podcast, a podcast where we host conversations about living creatively in God's created world. I'm your host, Justin Ariel Bailey, and I teach at Dort University, which is home to the Andreas Center, the sponsor of this podcast. On this episode of the podcast, I talk with Dr. Amy Davis Abdallah about her new book, Meaning in the Moment, how rituals help us move through joy, pain, and everything in between. It's a conversation about the power of ritual and how rituals help us find meaning and direction as we face endings, middles, and new beginnings. If you find yourself in the midst of any or all of the above, we hope this episode will be helpful to you. And we thank you, as always, for tuning in. Christians believe that we live in a world that belongs to God, that God is at work, even if the ways of God are often a mystery to us. We can do our best, we can make choices, we can take meaningful action. But we cannot guarantee that our plans will succeed, and we cannot escape from pain. We are not in control. Yet knowing that this is our Father's world gives us an anchor when things fall apart, when it feels like we are stuck or when we find ourselves with a sense of loss that we aren't sure how to name. God's loyal love invites us to make space, to pay attention to what's going on inside us and around us. This is part of what spiritual disciplines are meant to do. They're meant to ground us in the reality that we, too, belong to God. And yet spiritual practices are not transactional or automatic. Sometimes we feel their benefit. Sometimes we're not sure what they are doing. There's a story that I first read in a book by Philip Yancey that goes like this. A rabbi taught that experiences of God can never be planned or achieved. They are spontaneous moments of grace, almost accidental. His student asked, Rabbi, if God realization is just accidental, why do we work so hard doing all these spiritual practices? And the rabbi replied, so that we will be as accident prone as possible. You might say that today's guest wants to help us to be accident-prone in this way, to place ourselves somewhere where we might be found, which is to say her research deals with the craft and the power of ritual. Dr. Amy Davis Abdallah is a writer, speaker, and professor who has written a new book about ritual and the way that rituals help us, unite us, and change us. It was an engaging and thoughtful conversation, and I'm delighted to share it with you. Now. So I'm joined now by a friend, Amy Davis Abdallah, who is a professor, writer, speaker, and ritual creator. And we're talking about her new book, Meaning in the Moment How Rituals Help Us Move Through Joy, Pain, and Everything in Between. Amy, thanks so much for joining us on the In All Things podcast. I'm so excited. Thanks for having me, Justin. So let's start this way. You and I both grew up in Christian traditions that taught us to be suspicious of the subject of your book, rituals. Uh, And so we might call these free church or low church expressions of Christianity. And there's a suspicion that abounds. And I know that for some of my students who maybe come to university and they've never recited a creed and they've they've never participated in a responsive prayer. And so any sort of public ritual that feels different than what they might be used to in their church feels strange. Even sometimes they'll say, oh, it feels like we're in a cult, you know, especially if there's chanting or lighting a candle or something like that. And as someone who's obviously come a long way on this, you know, growing up in the tradition like you did to writing the book on rituals, uh, what do you say to someone who's like that, who's a bit suspicious of the very idea of creating and participating in rituals? Yeah, well, I first I just say I get it. I like you said, I grew up in a tradition that said, "Hey, we don't do ritual. We don't rituals horrible. Everything has to be led by Holy Spirit." Like it was all it was like you either you have ritual or you have Holy Spirit. You know, some rituals have been done really poorly. Ritual is used often for evil. You know, often when we think about ritual, we think about witchcraft or seances or like you're saying, lighting the candle and doing this. And and I guess it's okay to be suspicious. And that's one of the invitations that I have in the book. I, I really start out the book with kind of an apologetic for, hey, this is okay. You know, the truth is, 
instead of using the word ritual, you could use the word worship. You could use the word ceremony. Um, either of those are similar enough to what I'm talking about. And so if you like to worship, well, then, then maybe you like to ritualize. Now, that might be pushing people a bit far right now, but I know that even though we said we were not ritualized, I know that we had an altar call at the end of every service and we sang just as I am over and over <laughs> and over. I mean, that was that was one kind of church ritual that we did. We went through the same pattern. It was extemporaneous, yes, but we had words in, of the songs that we sang. And I guess, you know, not everyone necessarily wants to have a connection with our past. Like if you're talking about reciting a creed or something like that, I think there's a growing interest in having a connection to the past. And what I would say to that is that we haven't finally gotten it right. Um, mm. We, in our as theologians, as worshipers, as ceremony makers, we stand on the shoulders of giants, you know. And and so there are other ways that we do use ritual. Ritual has been used for negativity. One one of the things I found out in my book was about gang initiation. I just did a little bit of work on that. I mean, those that that's very ritualized and it's negative. Mm. But it brings people together in a very specific way. But when we think about the negative, when we think about witchcraft, and we think about gang initiations, and we think about these things, they do it because there's power in ritual. They don't do it because there's power for the negative in ritual. They do it because there's power in ritual. The power in ritual is, is neither good nor bad. It depends on how we use it. And so I think we as Christians have the opportunity to use ritual for good. I mean, we do it well when we do weddings. We do it well when we do funerals. And we follow, I mean, when we do baby dedications or, or baptisms, you know, like these are rituals that we that we already do. And that frankly, I think we do well. If you think about the wedding, a lot of those Christian, sim that Christian symbolism is has permeated our society, you know? And so, so we have all of this that, that comes together. And so I think that we have the opportunity to intentionally use ritual. And the reason I use the word ritual, I know it can, I don't think the word triggering is right, but I know that it can, um, that it can create images in people's minds. I want to situate what we do when we worship as Christians in the larger perspective of what humans have always done. Humans have always ritualized. It's something, it's a human activity. It is something that we have done to mark different stages of our lives, to mark life, to mark death. Uh, we do this. And so that's why I use the term because I think we can learn from what other people have done in order to enhance our Christian rituals. Certainly we're going to do it differently because of our theology, but but it's okay to be suspicious. I, I want to invite people into a conversation about mm. that. Yeah. One of the things you're pointing out, and you have a chapter that says similar language that we already ritualize. We just might not call it that. And it struck me in class a few weeks ago, I was talking to a student or we were talking the whole class and the student said, well, I watch this football team religiously. And I stopped him and I said, okay, just stop for just a second. You just used this word religiously. Why didn't you say regularly? Like what, what work is the word religiously doing that regularly is not doing? And he basically said, well, it signifies the consistency that I do it. I never miss you know, the chance to watch this team. And we always get together and we always wear, you know, a particular jersey or we'll have food together before. And you give all these great examples of ways that we already ritualize it, uh, but don't notice, uh, don't necessarily name it or notice it. Uh, there's an early chapter where you tell this uh, really powerful story about living near ground zero during 9-11. And you just name this sort of the role of ritual in the aftermath of that devastating event. And I wonder if you could retell that story for our listeners, because I think it captures the simplicity in some ways of the way that we reach for ritual in moments that are significant. That was a very significant time, I think, for anyone who was alive and old enough to understand what happened, not just in the United States, but really around the world. And so I was teaching in the city. So I was a seminary student, but I taught a class on Monday night, on September 10th, 2001. And uh, it was an evening class, and I left the class around 9 p.m., and I was, I was in Worth Street. So Worth Street was about 10 blocks north of where the, where the towers were. 
And so I left the class, I went home and I went for a run the next morning. It was a beautiful, like I can, mm. cause I can picture it still, you know, when like significant events happen in your life, you can still picture them and you can mm. think about what they smell like, what they felt like. It was a beautiful, sunny Tuesday, September morning. And I went for a run and I got home and it was before we had all the smartphones, right? So I turned on AMA 80, which comes out in New York to find out what the traffic and the, what, find out the, what the weather was so that I'd know what to wear the next day. And the first plane had hit the tower. And it was as if all of our heartbeats stopped. Like we just did not know what to do. Uh, I remember because I lived in that area, I called my mom and I called a bunch of other people because there were cell towers, like all of the communications towers were on top of there. And we lost communication for like at least 24 hours wow. with people outside of that area. And so I just called and I said, turn on the news. I'm okay. Uh, and, and we just kind of slowly went through that. And it, if you remember at the time, uh, the churches were packed after that. I don't know if other place, other religious institutions were packed, but most of them were. People were started having prayer services. We didn't know what was happening. Some people like went directly into the city. They're like, I'm going to cross that bridge before they close it because it's because Manhattan, of course, is, is surrounded by bridges and they they ended up being closed. And uh, and people just needed to find a place. They wanted the world had disintegrated. We had never really had a terrorist act of of that magnitude or anything that we would really notice on U.S. soil. Certainly, there have been at least one terrorist act since then. But so I had been attending church in the city, and so the next Sunday I went to my city church, and it was packed. Like it was usually packed. It was Redeemer Presbyterian in Manhattan and uh, Tim Keller's church. Tim Keller's yeah. church. Yeah. Uh, so it was usually packed, but at this time it was particularly packed. There were more people. It was like a standing room only service. And people were there, whether they believed or whether they didn't believe, because we run to things that are familiar because familiarity gives us comfort. You know, we want to do something and we want to be taken to, to another world. If, if our liturgy or if our church services can take us somewhere else, remind us that the kingdom of God is bigger than whatever just happened in our lives. If our ritual of the church service can do that, then that's what we want. We want to have something that is, that is familiar to us. So it was a packed church and it was, it was quiet. Like we didn't talk, we didn't laugh, we didn't, we didn't act in the normal ways, but we just sat there and we sat there together. But for me, that was really significant. And so what I did right after church was I got I got in the train and I went down as far as I could close to ground zero because I felt like I had to do something. Um, often a desire for ritual when there's been change, when there's been disruption, or when there's been even good significant change, like we just you just feel in your body, you have to do something. I want I want to make something happen. I have to, I have to move forward. And so uh, we I went down there and the closest we could get was Worth Street, where I had been the previous Monday teaching my class. And everything was kind of barricaded off. And and there were there were lots of people there. We saw loads of makeshift memorials because people had to do something. We saw missing person signs, which of course the memory of those is so is so heartbreaking. And it, it was silent. Like Lower Manhattan is never silent. That's the only time I've ever been there where it's silent. And we just we just stood there because we had to be there and we had to be close. And every time an emergency vehicle or people would come out, we would clap for them. And every time they went in, we would clap for them. Hmm. And there was something about, I don't remember the people that were there, but that ritual of going, that ritual of doing something, that ritual of being together and showing in the tiniest way possible an appreciation for people who are working and a rescue and a rescue capacity was so significant. It it helped it helped me. It helped alleviate some of the the turbulent emotions that I was feeling. It quelled anxiety a little bit. I don't think I was super anxious about it, um, but but it quelled that because you're like, okay, I did something. There's an agent see that ritual provides for us. And that unity, I don't remember those people, but we were together. And it helped me think, at least in some small sense, that I was together with multiple other people around our country and around our world, paying attention to what had occurred and trying to figure out how to find our stability and be able to move forward. Mm, yeah, thanks for telling that. I got goosebumps. I mean, I read the story and then even hearing you tell it again, there's a power that gets communicated even when you hear about somebody else's ritual that they participated in. And you've named all these different aspects of ritual in this, this sense of making space, acknowledging the gravity of what's happened. And I think your book does a really good job of capturing, you know, there's obviously lots of things in our life that 
have less gravity or less or, or less um, devastating than something like September 11th. And yet we still crave and benefit from creating rituals to mark the meaningful events in our life. Another interesting thing about your book is that you draw a lot of insights from psychological science to explain what ritual does for us. And this is actually how we we met originally. We were with a group of theologians learning from psych science, uh, and you've integrated a lot of that learning into this book. So I wonder if you could just share two or three insights from your research, from the studies that you uh, have done on how ritual helps us, unites us, and changes us. I, th- I thought this was one of the most fascinating things is to read these little studies that that you said. Yeah, I wanted to do a lot more on ritual psychology, but I didn't want to get too nerdy because this book is meant for like the the normal person. That's and right. so um, let me just start with an, one example of, an ex- not an experiment, a study that um, Norton and Gino did. It's one of the most famous studies that people have done with psychological theory and ritual. And ritual psychology is a, is a pretty new area of study for psychology. So it's really simply developing. So it's a really great place to learn. So here's what Norton and Gino did. They wanted to study rituals of grief and figure out if people were actually helped by rituals when they grieved. So what they initially did was they just talked to people. And people said one woman who had lost her husband would wash his car every Monday because that helped her remember him and helped her process that. Some people, after after a breakup, they would go and burn stuff in the park. Like people already invented like these small rituals to process their grief. And so Norton and Gino really wanted to, to create some kind of grief so that they could measure it. And so there's only certain kinds of grief that we can create. And what they wanted to create was a gambling loss grief. And not like you're going to really call this gambling, perhaps. But this is what they did. So pretend you're doing it. You, you get together. You've said, OK, I'll do this study. And you're together with a group of about 20 people in, in a room. And the person up front says, and they originally used $200. It was a couple of years ago. I'm going to use $500. So they said, here's $500. One of you lucky people is going to walk away today with $500. And they said, before we give it to anyone, I want you to sit and write down what that $500 would mean to you and what you would do with the $500. So as you're sitting there you're, and you're writing this stuff down, not only did you want the $500 to begin with, but then you're just like, no, I not only want this, I need this. I want, this is, this is what I'm going to do with it. And so, so then at the end of those 10, 15 minutes, they said, okay, uh, he, they would choose a person and they said, okay, you get the $500 and that person left. And then everyone is taken and it's not you, <laughs> everyone, and you feel sad. Mm-hmm. So everyone is taken into different cubicles and some of them are invited to do a ritual. And the ritual is just kind of weird. They said, okay, well, first you draw how you're feeling on a piece of paper, you throw some salt on it, you rip it up, and then you count to 10 five times in your head. then you walk away. And so some people did the ritual and some people didn't. And what's fascinating about that, I mean, I've looked at this study and it's been replicated. What's fascinating about that is doing that ritual significantly decreased people's feelings of sadness. It helped them regulate their emotions at that point. Hmm. I mean, it's it's not just a tiny bit. It's really significant. And so that was fascinating to me. And so it helps you regulate emotions. It also increases your agency. Like you, that was another thing that they measured. How do you, do you feel able to do things? Do you feel do you feel like you can accomplish things? And so the people who'd done the ritual, their agency was significantly higher than those who hadn't done the ritual. So they they regulated their emotions, it increased their their feelings of agency. And then in addition to that, calling it a ritual, whether or not the people believed that rituals could be effective, actually made it more effective. <laughs> so this hmm. is one study that they did and they replicated over and over and over and this is what they found from it. And so to me, if you just think about tiny, this tiny thing of grief, you're sad you didn't get $500. You're maybe not going to think about it the next day. But when you think about other areas of grief in our lives and to think, hey, if I do a ritual, maybe not throwing small salt on something, it was like, who knows how they figured out this is what we're going to do. It wasn't based on anything. That's basically what they say. We just chose to do this thing. Um, could help people alleviate, help people with their emotions, give them increased agency. That's really, really significant. And so they've they've done some work with psychological science with that. If you watch people, you were talking about your student who loves to watch football games. Athletes have intense and complex pregame rituals, as well as rituals for scoring, as well as, you know, like, what does that do for them? Why do they keep doing it? Well, what we think is that it alleviates their anxiety. 
You know, I mean, a pre like when you're getting ready for a game, I played sports in high school and college, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's going on in your body and your lives. And so if you take your focus from anxiety and turn it to ritual, well, then you have the opportunity to do this thing that makes you feel like you have agency, that you can accomplish whatever it is before you. And there's an anxiety epidemic in our world today. And so when I think as a Christian, if I can take my anxiety and somehow through some kind of worship ritual, turn it to God, Hmm. And that it would increase my agency. It would help me help alleviate that anxiety so that I would feel able to do whatever it is God's calling me to. It just seems like there's a treasure trove there. Hmm. So rituals help, but they also unite, particularly when we do when we do rituals with groups of people. And you see this particularly in gang initiation rituals, but I want our baptisms to be like that. I would love our weddings to be like this. When you come together and it's an initiation for one person, the way that you act with that person and the way those of you who've already been baptized or already been married, in this case, those who are already gang members, experience that interaction, enter into that interaction or invited into that makes you one, makes you together. I mean, when I was when I went to church um, the Sunday after September 11th, that helped me feel some kind of unity with other people. And then there are multiple other kinds of rituals that can offer that we are we are our bodies. I know you had David Taylor who talks about um, his book, A Body of Praise. And it gives us rituals give us this unique opportunity to act out of our unity as as bodies. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if your audience, if you're trichotomist or dichotomist or monist, but for right now, we're completely unified. Like we cannot separate what is invisible and what is visible in our lives. And and psychological theory would say, well, we know that you're probably feeling this this feeling because we see where your brain is being activated. We, it's, it's a physical thing. And it's this unique opportunity to act out of that unity. So not only un- union with others, but acting out of the unity that is the goodness of, of us being bodies. Yeah, I was going to ask you to explain top down and bottom up. I think that's what you're sort of doing right now. But could you use that? Th- those are terms from brain science or from psych science. Could you explain the, the top down and bottom up and how those things get integrated with, uh, with ritual? Yeah. So the tops down is, is I think before I act, it's kind of like you have, you have some kind of stimulus come to you and you think through, okay, well, what does this mean? Now I'm going to, now I'm going to move forward and I'm going to, I'm going to respond to that. The bottoms up is instinctual. So like there's a lion running after you, you know what you're going to do and you don't think about it at all. You do it, you do it kind of, you do it immediately and you do it bodily. I hope that's enough. I know that that there are there are people who explain that far better than no, I. No, you did, did a great job. Yeah, but but one of the fascinating things about ritual is that our body knows things that our brains don't, or that our conscious brain doesn't. You know that we and and there's a there's a mystery to ritual ritual that is not rational. And it's not always, and the, the thing is, like, there are times that, that yeah, you want to think before you act, but there are other times where you want to act instinctually. And I think particularly with kind of Western Christianity, we prefer to be very rational. Like, we receive God in our brain. We, we understand God by, by, by the way that we think. Our sermons last longer than our Eucharist, like, mm. than, our, than our Lord's Supper. And, and yet, God has made us physical and desires that we understand God both in rationality, but also very physically. Like that's why there's this Lord's Supper. That's why baptism is a physical thing that we do. That's why we hug each other, you know, and we seek to express God's love, God's love in that manner. Um, there are things that our body knows. And I always think about like the body keeps the score, or if you've ever talked to anyone in trauma, your rational brain will try to tell you, oh, this is fine. Everything's going to be okay. And your body tells you something different. And so, so there's that bottoms up processing that, that we need to integrate those. And when, when we act in ritual, that's one of the things that we do seek to do. Yeah, so we have a way of training ourselves both in our minds with good theology, but also in, in in our bodies through through rituals that actually help us to externalize or embody those sorts of things. Yeah. I want to connect with something you just said. We maybe could talk about this idea of going through the motions. And this is oftentimes the the way that ritual is critiqued when we talk about empty rituals. Um, there's the sense, oh yeah, you only just go through the motions without ever experiencing change. You've also just described this sort of going through the motions that actually leads to real movement towards God 
and others. And so I wonder if you could talk a bit about the difference between those two ways of going through the motions, or maybe in your book, you talk about the observance of the Lord's Supper in Corinthians and how, so it's not just that we just get all the right rituals, because obviously, even in the case of the early church, uh, they were doing the Lord's Supper in a way that was deformative. And so I wonder if you could say, what are some of the ways that our rituals go wrong? Uh, how do we distinguish between going through the motions in a way that is empty or powerless and going through the motions in a way that might actually be full and powerful? Yeah, you know, um, you mentioned a book in your in your question that I haven't read, yeah. that Lauren Winner's book. And so I read just the the brief kind of summary of what she had, and then I ordered it because I think I need it. <laughs> And it was the dangers of Christian practice. And she points out what you're talking about, that deformative nature of what we do. But one of the things in the summary that I read, which I hope is true about her, was just like, she's like, yeah, this has been used really poorly. And this is how, this is how these rituals were deformative. You know, I think about, I think about for, forced conversion with colonialism. And I think particularly about Latin America, that area that I've had a lot of experience in and that I'm interested in. And I remember just studying. It's like, okay, well, you have to, you have to do, you have to go through these motions. We're going to make you, we're forced, we're forcing you to do this um, just in order to, to continue your life and be part of, part of this new society that we're creating here, because we say it's better than whatever you had. Um, but what she does say is it doesn't mean that you stop doing the ritual. It's that you do it with an understanding that these are human practices, even though we talk we talk about God's act and the human act and um, and like the the meshing of the two. And so she doesn't say stop doing it. She says do it realizing that there there are limitations and that there there is that deformity. You know, I know people who have uh, gone through had just been there, just just gone through the motions, like you're saying. And yet somehow I do think, and this is liturgical theology, if you've ever studied any of the people with liturgical theology, that where you place your body is actually important. And if you're placing your body in a church, that's actually forming you even though you don't know it. And if you're receiving the Eucharist, that's actually forming you even though you don't know it. And maybe some of what comes later in a richness of relationship with God even though you're not making the connection consciously, may have been formed by that. And I think it's an important question for us to ask that where you place your body and what you do with it is significant. But I would say if we're looking at rituals that um, that free church Christians do, sometimes it goes wrong by the person who is leading, and sometimes it goes wrong by the participants not participating. So by the person who is leading, um, I remember the first time I celebrated communion, and I remember my my mentor telling me, okay, well, you have to go through it, and I want you to do it with me and right in front of me. I'm like, I know this thing. Like, there's no reason why I have to do this in front of you. And then I did it, and I totally screwed it up in front of him. <laughs> so then um, sometimes we don't think about what we're doing when we're leading. And so every time I celebrate communion, I want to think about the fact, and this term I use in the book is performance. I, I talk about ritual performance. And uh, I hated hearing that word at first. It's actually a category of study. Uh, if, you, if you're part of the North American Academy of, Academy of Liturgy, there's a lot with that. But like the way we do things is really significant. Uh, I think about my son. So my son, ever since he, he's still, he's seven. He's still, when I see him, he jumps on me and he hugs me with his whole entire body. It's mm. like legs around, arms around, head nestled here. My, my son could, and that, that like all in posture makes a huge difference in his expression of, of his loving me. And I think that when, and that's his performance of his love, but like the, what we do bodily and how we lead, you know, I saw someone present an award and when you're presenting an award, which is a simple ritual, which often happens like, okay, you've got high school students graduating in churches or maybe you're honoring someone, uh, maybe the founder of your church. Like those are different traditions. Like, do you know where the person's going to come up? Do you, do you know how you're going to shake their hand, how you're going to do the photo? And uh, frequently we can, if rituals create an alternative world, if we go somewhere for just a short period of time, and that's part of the performance, how do we, um, how do we not break that? I'm sure you've been there before where you're listening, perhaps listening to a sermon, which I think there are ritual elements to sermons, but you're listening to a sermon and the, the speaker has taken you to this place and you're with that person. Mm -hmm. And then maybe they tell a joke 
And you're like, oh, okay. Because it's how we do things as leaders is really significant. Yeah, it's like in your book, you talk about the way ritual draws its attention to itself. And the moment when somebody tells a joke, all of a sudden they go from taking you somewhere to drawing attention to the ritual itself, right? Making you think about the thing that's taking you somewhere rather than thinking about the place that you're going. Yeah, because if you think too much about the thing that's taking you somewhere, the ritual has to act below the level of conscious awareness. Like you have to not know that that's going on. You know, I love to do this um, This during Holy Week. I would tell the story of Mary, the mother of Jesus in like four different parts. And there would be a foot washing, you know, that was common on a Thursday night, like Maundy Thursday ritual in I just remember doing it with someone who just didn't get what I was trying to do. And, you know, I'm, we're in the story. We're in the songs. We're in, mm-hmm. we're in all of this. And um, it's the time for the foot washing. And I had just told the story of John chapter 13. And he's like, oh, yeah, well, and this person did this foot washing at this thing just a couple of weeks ago. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, we were there. Okay. Mm. And it brings you back to to like the present. So rituals act below the level of conscious awareness, but also participants and how people participate does make a big difference. And that's something that that no one can control. Yeah. You know, if everyone's going there just because they're supposed to, or everyone's mm-hmm. doing this thing just because they're supposed to, and they're not engaging their heart, that mm. does that does affect um it does it does affect whether it's effective. Yes. Yeah, the way the way you just described it suddenly made me think of teaching, you know, when you're in class with students and how often it can feel transactional, right? It can feel like for whatever reason, either I'm not at my best or they're not at their best. Uh, and it just feels like, oh, this is just a transaction, you know, you're just sort of showing up and going through the motions. And then there are those lovely moments or classes where, as I describe it, your intention meets their attention and there's something really magical that happens in the classroom. And there's a, yeah, there's a ritual structure to that as well. And that can go wrong in many of, many of the same ways. I wanted to ask, so now to actually get into what we might ritualize, uh, the last few chapters of your book, you talk about ritualizing ends, middles, and beginnings. So not beginnings, middles, and ends, but ends, middles, and beginnings. And I wonder if you could talk a bit about each of these, and with a particular attention perhaps to uh, what sorts of ends or middles or beginnings we might ritualize. I have done a lot of work on rites of passage. And so rites of passage are kind of structured as leaving the end, leaving what was, going through a period of training, and then and then beginning. And so I kind of borrowed that. And I put ends first. I mean, we usually think beginnings, middles, ends. Like Mm -hmm. that's how our stories work, right? I put ends first, not because it was my idea. A guy named William Bridges wrote that. And his basic point is if we don't end well, then we won't go through our middle well and we won't begin well. Now, it's not like our lives always have like this discrete ending and middle and 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 beginning, but but I thought it was a helpful structure for us to use. And I and I start with ends. You know, I start with like people don't don't like to talk about the grief of endings. We, in our society, our funerals are like two days and then you go back to work and you're not supposed to really think about it that much after that. And if someone recognizes it later, well, that's really significant that they said something to you. And so we like to ignore our, we like to ignore our ends. And one of the areas that we talk a lot about, at least I write a lot about in the book, is ambiguous loss. Do you think about pandemic? Um, we had ambiguous losses in pandemic. We lost being able to be with our friends. We lost being able to do play dates with our kids. There are all these losses where there's no casket and there's no funeral. And so how do you process those losses? Now, what's interesting with ends is that really the, the ambivalence of ends, like all of the all of the feelings, because some ends, you're ready for that end, right? It's it's okay that you're leaving this. There, there are a lot of conflicting emotions in ends. And the ends that I offer two rituals for are two that our church don't doesn't necessarily um, recognize. One is miscarriage or stillbirth. A lot of people experience miscarriage and stillbirth in their family, and the church doesn't really offer them a ritual for that. And I think it's this incredible pastoral opportunity to come to people who are Christian and those who are, I mean, it's, I think it's an outreach opportunity, come to those who are not Christians and just say, how do we help you process this? We already have rituals of funerals. How do we take things from that and help these men and women, these parents? I mean, they may have never had had a live child born to them, but, but they're parents, you know, and how do we help them process? I think it's a pastoral opportunity. I also have a ritual for divorce. 
I wanted, I mean, we don't celebrate divorce. I don't think anyone who walks down the aisle intends to get divorced, but divorce happens. And in our church and in our world, there are loads of people who are divorced. And many of them don't come back to church because they think God hates divorce. And they feel like there's a big letter D on their head instead of the letter mm-hmm. A, right? And so what I want to do with like a divorce, okay, that's an end. People get married in the church or with a minister if they're Christian, and then they get divorced in a courtroom. How do we say, how do we, how do we help them understand that they're reconciled to God in that particular type of end? And then I talk about middles, um, uh, unemployment. Uh, my school just closed a month and a half ago. So I'm in this like lengthy middle. I don't know how long it's going to be, but there are these middles. I remember that I wanted to get married when I graduated from college. Well, that didn't happen. And I didn't get married till I was 39. So that felt like this long middle. People have chronic illness. You know, these are these middles. And I think we ignore those middles. We always want to solve someone's problem. Okay, let me, let me introduce you to someone that you're going to get married to. Let me, let me fix, let me fix this. Let me get you a job. Let me do all of this. Because it, we call it a problem, but but some of these things just last a long period of time. And how do we help and pastor people through those middles? How do we find stability in the midst of these liminal times? And how do we say, say chronic migraines, how do we celebrate and help people mark this part on their journey when they finally have a medication that, that helps them feel better? For like 12 hours even, um, how do we mark parts in the liminal stage? And then beginnings, that's the shortest chapter because we love to celebrate beginnings. Right. But we miss a couple things in beginnings. We miss the ambivalence. So like there's always this these ambivalent emotions that are characteristics of all, characteristic of all those stages. We miss that beginnings are really hard. You know, when people get married, we, we say, oh, how's married life? We don't say, so do you miss being single and have you processed that end very well? When people graduate, oh, what are you going to do next? We don't say, well, do you really miss that safety of, of studying? Uh, yeah, we know it was hard, but there's a certain amount of safety in studying that you, that you lose when you go out into that, into that workplace. And so to understand some of those other characteristics and in our rituals to, to process that is significant. Yeah. So if I could just, again, note that what we're doing here is we're naming, we're making space for, and we're acknowledging that God cares about this thing and that God cares about us as we walk through this sort of thing. And it sort of sparked this in my mind as I was listening to you talk that I was in youth ministry maybe 15 years ago. And I noticed about myself, I would always get sad in October. Um, And I thought, why why do I always get sad in October? And I realized at some point that I was grieving the loss of the, you know, the seniors who had graduated and gone away to college. And even though we had had an ending, right, we we had sent them off and everything like that. I, I feel like now I wish I had created some sort of ritual of grief in October, you know, because, you know, August, September comes and you have all the energy of the new school year. And then October comes, right? And it's before the holidays. And, and so, um, yeah, this is, this is that idea of what you call disenfranchised grief, uh, griefs that we have, sadness that we feel that there's not a clean category for, uh, and we're maybe missing all of these opportunities to, to name them, to notice them, and to notice what God might be calling us to uh, in the midst of this. Yeah, society doesn't give us the opportunity to grieve a lot of things. And when society doesn't give us that permission, then we often don't give ourselves permission. And so I'm hoping with my book that that I'm giving people permission to say, hey, this is significant. And if I do something about it, if like you're saying, naming is so significant with this, hey, this is why I feel weird in October. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's because I really miss those people. And how do I how do I remember them and allow a ritual to help me be where I am right now and enjoy this next group of students? So part of what you are trying to do in this book is to help us create more meaningful and powerful rituals. And so maybe there are some people or some college students perhaps about to graduate and thinking that they should maybe think about this sort of thing as they get ready to leave this liminal space that is college and go on to uh, another season of life. Uh, or, you know, in some of the other categories that you've already mentioned. So what are some hallmarks of powerful rituals? Uh, that we should, as we're thinking about how might I create something here, uh, what what would you say would be some of the most important elements to think about? A lot of what I have with powerful rituals comes from Ronald Grimes' work on rites of passage. And so I do a rite of passage for women. Um, I help women name themselves as Christian women. And it's a year-long rite of passage that's now a video curriculum. 
And one of the, so he's got three hallmarks of rites of, of what makes a ritual effective. And the first one is it pays attention to what's going on at the time. So it pays attention to the change. It pays attention to the event. Not five years afterwards. Like we often have changes in our lives where five years later we say, oh, wow, that was actually really significant. But when you pay attention to it at the time, then you help process that. Um, and, it, and it makes it, a ritual is going to be effective when it's timely. So as you're, if you've got students who are thinking about, okay, well, what am I, what am I going to do? Go to graduation. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. you pay attention. I know, I know students, oh, I don't, that's a, that's, we call that ritual completion. It's the ritual end of what you're going to do. Get the tassel, go to dinner, do all of those things because those are culturally re- recognized, paying attention to the actual time that it happens. And even if you graduate in December, come back for the May graduation if you don't have an actual, an actual, like our school is too small to do large graduations mm-hmm. both times. So you pay attention. The purpose of the ritual is is transformation. And so if it's not about just doing something. It's about actually fostering a place and a time for people to be transformed in the actual event. The third hall- hallmark of an effective ritual is that it requires much from individuals and communities. Now, certainly... Like a, a graduation is something that requires a lot of all of those people. There are loads of different people involved. You get, you invite an extra person in who's going to be the speaker usually, right? But um, you can even do smaller ones, like smaller rituals for the different events in your lives that that you do invite other people to be a part of. But when it requires more, if you think about a graduation or you think about a wedding, um, part of what makes a wedding so such an effective and memorable ritual it becomes it because it's been repeated. We've seen so many, so they become they. Um, what Grimes says is they get deeply deep into our bone, hmm. but it's also it's also because like you invest, like the people invest. We who come, we invest. Like there's this hmm. investment that makes a significant difference, and so those are three kind of hallmarks of of the most effective rituals. And the other area are carefully chosen symbols. One of the things that Tillich says is that, is that symbols participate in the reality to which they point. Um, you know, if you're graduating from Dort and you're thinking about this, what are you going to take with you from Dort? Is there is there something that you're going to buy at the bookstore that you hope will always be with you? It's funny that I'm saying that because when I graduated with my PhD, like the day I defended and the day they said, congratulations, doctor, I went to the bookstore and I got a water bottle that said Drew University and then it got all dented and I lost it later, which was really sad because that was a symbol of my completion. And that's not necessarily ritual, but we can use those symbols and maybe not water bottles, like like what are you going to have in different places? Symbols are really fascinating because they can say what would take us 30 minutes to say in words because there's a deep meaning and they often, you create meaning by the manner in which you use them. So those would be the four kind of mm-hmm. biggest things that, that make rituals effective. Uh, my last question, maybe to return to the beginning you know, for some people, this emphasis on ritual might take some getting used to, or maybe old suspicions are hard to break. And one of the things that church leaders and professors try to do is to try to meet people where they are, but also to help them stretch and move in better directions. And so I wonder for those who lead others or who might be in the position of creating rituals for others, how do you get that tension right of, of sort of meeting people where they are, but also encouraging them to stretch a bit and to move in some better directions when it comes to creating rituals? I think that there are certain things that you can't really move until you take an act because rituals are so like, hey, read my book. Fantastic. Go ahead and read my book. But I'm wondering if I can invite your people to try like a really simple ritual right now. In the book, there are there are three different types of rituals. There are right now rituals, there are with friends rituals, and there are at church rituals. So they're just suggestions. You can use them or not use mm-hmm. them. But one of the rituals that I think is really significant is is one, the right now rituals you can do alone. You don't need to have anything special to do them. And so so one of the things that I think is easy about my book is it's like, hey, try this. See if it works. So so can we do that, Justin? I've got I've got it. I've got it in front of me. And what what you will what you will need if you have it, and I know your people maybe in multiple different places, is a glass of water. So I brought my prop with me because this is one of the things I was hoping to do. If you don't have one, that's fine. But the purpose of this this is a ritual for liminal times. We're recording this when there's a lot of unrest in our world, 
And one of the questions is, how do we find stability when we don't feel stable? And so my purpose with this is trying to find stability. So it's a ritual that reminds us of what's stable in our lives, even in the midst of a lot of instability. So if y'all are with me, maybe people are walking. I don't know where they are, but um, you can do this later. You can do it now. So I invite you to kind of breathe deeply and bring yourself into the present moment. So maybe take like three different breaths, three deep breaths. Have your eyes closed, your eyes open. It's up to you. This is normally when you're in the midst of ambiguity or feelings of instability. So if you want to state, I invite you to state out loud or silently to God, any kind of ambiguity or instability that's troubling you. And it can be just simply as, God, I've lost what once was, and I don't know what's next. That's where I am right now. And then if you're seated, if you can take both feet and put them solidly on the floor and kind of press them down. Concentrate on the feeling of stability and grounding, having your feet on the ground brings. And then bring to mind several examples of stable elements in your life. Maybe you get enough food every day. Maybe you have a place to live. Maybe there are relationships that are not changing. Maybe you have a salary. Think of those stable elements and kind of look at them and allow them to um, try to stand on them with your feet as you're pressing down with your feet and you're reminding yourself of the stability of the ground. Then if you have water, and I have mine, hold a beverage And as you hold it, note the stability and solid nature of the cup. Ponder the gift that it is to have access to water. How water is what you're mostly made of. It sustains your life and it sustains your body. Thank God for the gift of water. Then as you drink, You can say, Lord, as you have given me this water to sustain me, I trust you will provide what I need. Lord, as you've given me this water to sustain me, I trust that you will allow me to find stability in my life. You can say that once. You can say that multiple times. You can can do that in the morning and remind yourself of that each day. That is a super simple ritual. Thank you, God, for that, for whatever you've done in the audience, for whatever you've done in our lives as we've done that. Thank you for that, God. But that's just a really simple ritual that's a made-up ritual that is a Christian ritual that has to do with God and places of liminality. We That's one of the areas that we just ignore with our Christian mm-hmm. rituals in general. Well, thank you so much for leading us through that. And I'm excited that our listeners get to participate or at least have the opportunity to participate in one of the rituals that you talk about in your book. The book is Meaning in the Moment, How Rituals Help Us Move Through Joy, Pain, and Everything in Between, our guest and its author, Amy Davis Abdallah. Amy, thanks so much for joining us on the In All Things podcast. Thanks, Justin. It's been great. Thanks for listening to the In All Things podcast. You can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are found. And if you find our content helpful, please help us out by leaving a review or sharing with others. This week, we close out with more original music from our friends, The Ruralists, a song that encourages us to attend to what's happening right here and right now, and to ask, is enough enough? Feel free to turn the dial or stay with us while the Ruralists sing us out with a song here now from their album, Trying. I pray to the saints into the guy the bottom of the night I wait on a word, on a whisper, never heard, though I
Is enough.